Well, I want to invite everyone to open your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 4. Uh, don't be afraid to use the table of contents. Uh, 2 Timothy is toward the end of the Bible. It's a letter, 2 Timothy chapter 4. And, and how many of you, um, there are these times and moments where you just feel like a million bucks, like the sun, sun is shining and you are excited, and, and if there was a, a, a Bengals football game, even though you have no physical ability to be out there on the field, you just mentally could do it, and you just are ready for whatever life has you. Anyone know that feeling? All right, I feel the opposite of that right now. Um, so in God's providence, I'm, I got sick, and I, so I apologize if my voice um, sounds the way it does, or if I start hacking and coughing. Um, I'm sorry, um, but uh, in God's providence as well, uh, we're engaging in um, God's Word and a foundation that is certainly stronger than I am, and so we're excited to engage in that this morning. <clears throat> so we're in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, and before I read our passage, uh, we're, we're entering into a new season as a church considering legacy. Uh, once upon a time, before there were Republicans and Democrats, before there was Fox News or MSNBC, before there was a debate over kneeling for the national anthem and Nike ads, like once upon a time before there was any idea of the United States of America, there was Rome. A republic that would become an empire under a leader, Caesar Augustus. And Augustus was the first emperor of the Roman Empire and is widely regarded as the most influential Roman leader in history. And the empire would expand under Augustus's leadership throughout Europe and in northern Africa, western Asia. It was the dominant world power of the first century. And the Roman Empire espoused a creed called the Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome. Now, the Peace of Rome came about through three ways, three ways in which they brought peace and extended the empire. Through social inequality, there was a caste system, and one of the ways in which they would fund the expansion of the empire and the roads that were built at this time that connected cities together was by taxing people and through slave labor. In order for this peace to be instilled, there had to be a strong social order and caste system of people in power and those out of power. In order for, the, for there to be peace in the Roman Empire, they had to appease the powerful they would enter into different territories and they would find out who was powerful, who aligned with Rome, and they would set them up in order to control people. And in order for them to instill this peace, of course, if you kind of see the irony here, they had to kill their enemies. Any threat to the empire was executed and held up in public display so that people feared the power of Rome. This was the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome that came about under Caesar Augustus. And once upon a time, during Augustus' reign, a baby would be born in a no-name town called Bethlehem to an unwed teenage girl, and he would be called 
19. And this baby would grow to be a man and whose message was against Rome, against the injustices of Rome and the Roman Empire and the world. And he would say things like this in John chapter 16. Jesus would say, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And the peace of Christ in contrast to the peace of Rome brought equality for all. Jesus would break down the power structures, the caste systems of his day, bringing equality There was no slave or free, male or female. There was equality in Jesus Christ. Jesus would confront the powerful, and Jesus would be killed for its enemies. And the king's fame, Jesus would would grow, and his glory would eclipse that of Caesar Augustus and any king who has ever lived in the history of the world. And his kingdom... This kingdom of equality, confronting the powerful, and sacrificial love would overthrow the Roman Empire, the most dominant empire in the world. Christ's kingdom would overcome, overthrow, and its power continues today. This legacy of Jesus and his kingdom continues. You know, we may not experience the same... Uh, persecution as was happened in the Roman Empire, but divisions exist today. And the need for this legacy continues today. And God has entrusted, just like he raised up leaders in his time, to begin this new kingdom movement. The movement continues as God has called and sent us and placed us in the world today to continue his kingdom Our vision as a church is to be a people joining God's story of transformation and renewal. We are joining God's movement that began when Jesus commissioned his disciples to go to the world with the good news of the gospel. Once upon a time, there was a man named Saul who would meet Jesus, and his life would be transformed. And Paul would be the greatest missionary in the history of the church. And At the end of Paul's life, he's thinking about legacy. And that's where we find ourselves in 2 Timothy chapter 4. Paul is imprisoned in Rome. Roman persecution has not escaped him. Paul is at the end of his life. He's going to be executed in a few weeks. He's at the end. And he's thinking about legacy. He's thinking about what's going to go on when he's gone. And he pens these words in 2 Timothy chapter 4, the last letter that we have in the Bible from Paul. He's writing to a young man, to a young pastor, Timothy. And what does he leave him with? How does he close out? Let's see. In 2 Timothy 4, beginning in verse 1, Paul, we see his appeal to Timothy. Listen to these words. He says, I charge you. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching, for the time is coming. 
Timothy. The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. This is Paul's final words to Timothy. His final charge. When he's thinking about legacy, what he wants to continue, he roots it in the word of God. In the coming weeks, we're going to explore legacy. We're going to talk about how we can have as a people and personally a legacy that honors God. And as we begin, we begin with how Paul closes God's word. How God's word shapes and empowers us to leave a legacy. And so we're going to look at two things this morning what it looks like to be anchored in God's word, and what happens when God's word is anchored in us. First, our posture toward the word of God, and second, how we allow God's word to have a posture toward us and how we live. First, our posture toward God's word, what it means to be anchored in the word of God. Before we preach God's word, we need to consider how do we handle it? How do we read it? What is the Word of God? Um, well, I have some bad news. Um, my car was flooded last weekend. It's really sad. Um, it rained a lot. Waters. Uh, I don't think it, it wasn't quite like the, the flood of Noah. Uh, but for my car, for poor old Toyota Camry, it was. It was. It was the flood. And, um, and there was nothing I could do. I just sat there and watched the waters take the car, and it didn't sail away. Don't, there was no epic thing, but the water just came up, and my car no longer works is the point. And so it needs help, and I need help for the car. And anytime our car is flooded or has some failure, where do you take it? Don't, you don't take it to me. Don't take it to the church. You, you take it to a mechanic. And a mechanic understands a car, or at least they should. The, the, we, we hope that they do. And when a mechanic understands a car, it understands how every part plays to the whole. In order to make the car function, a mechanic understands that a car needs to move, and every part plays a function in the car being able to operate it. If I, my flooded out car, if I said, you know what, I'm going to take it to the mechanic, and I'd show up at the mechanic with my car, and like, you know what, your car needs new tires. I would think, no, I don't think it does need new tires. If a mechanic thought that the problem of every car was just that it needed a new set of tires, we, you don't want to take your car to that mechanic because it, it prioritizes one part of the car and doesn't understand the whole. I find that many of us run into the same problem as it comes to the Bible. We might prioritize certain functions of the Bible or see certain parts of the Bible, but we fail to understand how it all works together. And so as we begin in engaging the Word of God, I think it's very important for us to take a step back and to ask some big questions about what the Bible is and how we are to read it. 
If we are to faithfully preach God's word, we need to understand the word we're called to preach. And so if you'll allow us this morning to just to kind of get to some of the nitty-gritty, if you're here and you are not a believer and, and the word of God is confusing to you, I want you to know you're not alone. Uh, many Christians are confused by the word of God. We see different teachings about God's word, and we don't know what to do. Because everyone, every preacher claims to be preaching the word of God. And every heresy has a Bible verse. And so there's a part of us, you know, a, a mechanic is fairly easy because hopefully there's like, a, there's like a manual for how to fix a car. And it's not really debated. It's pretty straightforward. Now, some mechanics might be better than others, but it's pretty straightforward. When it comes to God's word, as we're engaging this historical text that's been uh, translated in different languages, that's been applied in different places, that was written uh, ages ago, how do we come and engage it? Because it's, it's tempting to just step back and say, you know, we don't know where to begin. No one knows what the Bible says. Well, I think there's a healthy way to engage God's word, and let's look at how we do that. A few practical ways, our posture toward the Word of God, how we can be anchored in it. The first is this. To faithfully preach God's Word, it begins by receiving God's story. Before you preach God's Word, God's Word must be preached to you. And this is, this is vital for us to understand, that our posture toward the Word of God is not one of placing ourselves as authority over it. We are receiving God's word. And I think this, this illustrates something very important for us, that the goal in healthy biblical interpretation is not to uh, come up with new ideas. In our culture today, we, we elevate youth. We elevate newness. We want to break free from the beliefs of the past. And there, there, is, there is some wisdom in some of that. There is an idea of healthy progress in our world. But as it relates to the Bible, our fundamental impulse should not be to break free from the teachings of the Bible in the past. We receive God's word. You know, uh, whose word is, is Timothy charged to preach? It's not Paul's word. It's not Timothy's word. It's not the word of the people in his congregation. It is God's word. There's a posture of receiving quality, healthy, biblical interpretation begins with a posture of humility toward it. We receive God's word first. Also, our posture toward the Bible, being anchored in the Bible, requires that we see the story of God's redeeming work. We see the entirety of Scripture, the core story that it is communicating. When Paul uses the term, the word, here, he's referring to the gospel story, the word in its entirety, the word of God, beginning in creation, in Genesis, God as creator, and then we see the fall in Genesis 3, sin, sin and brokenness entering into the human condition, into the world, and then in redemption, the, the story of the Bible is not good advice on what we need to do, but it is good news of what God has done in Jesus Christ. And then in restoration, there is a future. Creation, fall, redemption, 
restoration. This is the story of the Bible. And you see, this is important because it's tempting sometimes to pick certain passages and prioritize them and miss the story as a whole. A healthy approach to Bible sees the larger story of God's redeeming work, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Also, as we engage God's word, we read the Bible in its historical context. We read it in its historical context. When we engage 2 Timothy, when Paul says, preach the word, we come to it and we want to understand, what does Paul mean by what he says? What is the author of this text? What do they mean with what they are saying? There's a cultural background and script that we must engage in order to rightly interpret and understand the word of God. Uh, one of my professors in seminary, he has a, a great example, and I've, I'm sure you've heard, you may have heard me say this before. But when I say the term or the phrase, the cowboys went to the frozen tundra to melt the cheese heads, what am I saying? I'm saying the Dallas Cowboy football team went to Lambeau Field, and they played a football game, and they wanted to beat the Green Bay Packers. That is what I said in that statement. Now, if you are not familiar with English, and you lived uh, years from when that statement was uttered, and you read it, you uncovered an old tweet from Jay or someone that said the Cowboys went to the frozen tundra to melt the cheeseheads, and you read this, and you got out your English lexicon, your dictionary. You say, okay, cowboy. All right. Okay, I have a picture now of someone on a horse and a hat. All right, went to the frozen tundra. Look in my lexicon and my dictionary. Okay, um, in, a, in a very cold place, a frozen tundra, maybe in the North Pole or somewhere. Cheesehead. Oh, there's not, this isn't in the dictionary. Um, so what's cheese? Okay, here's what a cheese was. And then, okay, I'm not quite sure. It would be confusing, right? If you did not understand the cultural script in which those words were uttered, you would misinterpret the statement. You know, sometimes uh, we come to the Bible, we ask the question, a lot of people say, you know, what does the Bible literally say? And sometimes there, you may have heard preachers and people talk about this, of what is the plain meaning of the text? Now, there's a part of that is true, but the goal is not what does the text say, but what does the text mean by what it says? Not the plain reading of the text, but the genuine reading that was, wanted, that was communicated by the author. Quality biblical interpretation takes into account the historical context. We don't impose our 21st century perspective on the word of God. We seek to understand the historical context. Now, examples of how this plays out would be an area like Genesis 1. There's a temptation to read Genesis 1 through the 21st century debate on creation and to impose some of our struggles and questions and scientific tensions on the text. We seek to read the Word of God in its historical context. Also, our posture toward the world of God, how to be anchored in it. We must, and this is very important, prioritize what is central and clear. We need to prioritize what is central and clear. It is tempting to get lost in the weeds and to miss the forest of where God is taking us. To take one particular passage and build a whole perspective of the Bible and life 
you know, one of the ways we like to think of this here at, Scar at Scarlet City is to have areas that are uh, closed-fisted and those that are open-handed. To be clear with where the Bible is clear and to acknowledge the tension where there are tensions. Be closed-fisted where the Bible is clear and central and to be open-handed where it isn't. A few examples. We are closed-fisted with God as creator. We believe it is very clear in the Bible and taught over and over and over and over again that God is creator. God is God. We are open-handed, as I was referring to earlier about Genesis 1. Is it six days or a longer period of time? We're open-handed on that issue. Godly people can disagree. There are people in this congregation that have different views, and that is okay. Another example, we believe that Jesus will return, and all who place their faith in him will experience future resurrection. We are closed-fisted in this doctrine, the return of Christ. We are open-handed about what that will look like, whether there will be a rapture or no rapture. There are godly people who disagree on this issue, and there are different views here in Scarlet City on that perspective. We're, we're open-handed about the timing, other than, knowing we, uh, other than acknowledging we don't know the timing of when Jesus will return. Uh, we are close-fisted that it is faith alone in Jesus Christ for salvation, and that, we, and that upon faith in Jesus Christ, we experience the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We are open-handed about how that baptism is practiced today. Godly people disagree on whether one should and can be baptized as an infant or baptized as a believer. At Scarlet City, we practice believer's baptism, but it is not a closed-fisted perspective. There are people at Scarlet City, members at Scarlet City, who are baptized as children. You see, it's important that we acknowledge the issues that we're close-fisted on and those we're open-handed with. Because we want to create a community here. You see, the temptation is always to focus on these issues, the open-handed issues, and then to create divisions around them, to create divisions around where the Bible isn't clear. And I think, you know, I, I think that's a, there's a part of all of us that we want clarity with everything. We want to take any mystery out of God, out of the Bible. We want to eliminate tensions with theology and just have our convictions. I think a healthy principle of biblical interpretation is allowing God to be clear where he wants to be clear. And to be humble and open where he's not. We must prioritize where the Bible is clear and central, but be open where it isn't. You know, Paul, in, these, these, in his writing to Timothy, he puts it like this in verse 5. He says to Timothy, As for you, Paul has just talked about some people who had fallen off into false teaching. He says, Now for you, Timothy, here's what I want for you. I want you to be sober-minded. Be sober-minded, Timothy. Be clear-headed. Think clearly. Allow God's word, his word, that you have received, 
that is very clear at the core story of what it is about. Allow that word to be your authority. Allow that to shape how you view everything else. Be sober-minded, Timothy. So as we consider being anchored in God's word, that is where it is. That we come to God's word, receiving it, submitting to it, making what is central, central, and being humbled in our approach to the word of God. So we must be anchored in God's word if we were to have a legacy shaped by it. But also, if we're to have a legacy shaped by God's word, we need to allow God's word to shape us. God's word reveals truth about God in order to reform how we live. God's word anchors us in a story greater than ourselves. What does it look like when God's word enters in, shapes us, and anchors us? You know, once upon a time, the God who created the world created you. Created you. All of us here have a story. A story of creation. We all have origins. We all come from a place. We all come from a family. Also, in each of our stories, there are instances of failure and pain, mistakes, and sin. In your story, there are examples of disappointment and shortcomings, people letting you down and you letting others down. Each of our stories has moments of pain and failure. There is creation. There is a fall. There is also redemption. The desire for things to be made right. The invitation by God to be anchored in his story, his work. That we can rest in his forgiveness. And there is a future. There is a future for all of us. An invitation an invitation to rest in the work of God and the future he wants to bring. And so as you think about your once upon, what is your story? What is your story? You know, Paul, at the end of his life, as he, he closes with these powerful words, listen to this. And as you read this, be thinking when your end comes, what do you want it to close with? Paul says, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only me, but also all who have loved his appearing. What story can anchor you in life? What story can anchor you? You know, as we close, I think just a few practical ways when God's word becomes our anchor, what it means. What it means for God's word to become our anchor in their text. Paul says, preach the word. How does God's word preach to us, shape us? Two things. Uh, when we're anchored in God's word, he says this in verse two. Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. Be ready in season and out of season. God's word applies at all times. It is good news in every place and everywhere. It is good news in every season. As you think about your story today, what season are you in? What would be the season you're in right now in life? 
Uh, some, some here are in a season of joy and prosperity. You're excited. Life is good. Good things are happening to you. There's goodness. There's celebration. There's reason to be joyful today based on your circumstances. God's word has a message for you. As a message for us in those good seasons. It has a message in the blessings of life, and that is to steward those blessings well. If we're to leave a legacy, God's word wants to, it calls us to take the ways in which we have been blessed to be a blessing to others. There is good news in your season of prosperity, an invitation that the word of God places on you and me in our prosperity that we be a blessing, that we not just hoard the resources God brings our way, but that we steward them well. Be ready in season, out of season. Others are in a season of despair, a season of despair. Much like Paul at this time, he's in prison under the power of Rome. We can feel imprisoned by the hard realities of our life. You might feel like my car, just flooded, wondering if you're ever going to work again, wondering what the future can hold. In those moments of despair, God's word is good news for us. Good news that there is a God who is stronger than our circumstances. Good news of a story that's bigger than just what's happening right now. Paul, in his moment of despair, is still able, still able. He says, I have fought the good fight. There's only so much that Emperor Nero can do to me. Emperor Nero's fight is to get rid of Christians, to get rid of Paul. But Paul's fight isn't over. He knows that this story is going to go on. There are Timothys and others coming along who are going to take the mantle of the gospel and it will go forward no matter the fight of Nero or any emperor or any leader since. In the midst of the despair and floods of life, allow the good news of the hope of the gospel to be your anchor. We are part of a story that is bigger than ourselves. God's word applies at all times. And also, being anchored in the Bible, allowing the Bible to be anchored in us, means there is good news of a path to move forward. Good news of a path to move forward. Paul puts it this way. He says, preach the word. Be ready in season, out season. He says, preach the word anytime, anytime, place, Timothy. It's not just on Sunday mornings. It's not just what pastors do. We're talking live the word. Preach it through your life, your words, and your actions. And give people the good news that there's a path for them, a future for them, a way to live. He says, reprove, rebuke, and exhort. Now, these are, these are like Bible-y kind of terms. <laughs> reprove, rebuke, exhort. It sounds like something a preacher would say. Here's what Paul is wanting to say. Allow the word of God to shape your life. That's what he's saying. Allow God's word to be your path forward, to shape how you live. All of us are shaped by a word. All of us are shaped by a word. It's a matter of whose word is our ultimate authority. There's a temptation for us, and that's to be shaped by the word of others. 
to take the path of least resistance. That's why Paul, he's charging Timothy. He knows that there are going to be some who are going to come and they're going to reject the truth of God. He says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Paul knows there are going to be some people that are going to reject, reject the truth of God, and there's a temptation by Timothy to make their word superior to God's word, to take the path of least resistance, to try to preach a word that will just affirm people's convictions about life. Paul says, don't take the path of least resistance. Don't make the authority of your life the word and opinions of others. But also, don't make your path about personal ambition, Timothy. Look at how he closes in verse 5. He says, as for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Your ministry, Timothy, is rooted in God's word, not your word. This isn't your authority, Timothy. This isn't the path that will elevate you. You don't use God's word to promote yourself, is what he's saying. There might be suffering. There will be suffering. There will be hardship. As Dumbledore says to young Harry, it's Dumbledore, right? I'm, I'm not, is the wizard, right? And the first one, he says, Harry, there will come a time where you, where you will need to make the decision between what is right and what is easy. Paul says, Timothy, there will come times where you will be put at a crossroads and you will need to make decisions between what is right, what is rooted in God's word, and what is easy. Do not take the path of least resistance. Do not take the path of personal ambition. Take the path of the word of God. After all, as we think about legacy, legacy, two truths about every one of us here. All of us inherit a legacy and we all pass on a legacy. When you allow the word of God to be your anchor, you are rooting yourself in a story that is bigger than you. Good news that has been around before you were alive, and it will be around after you are gone. Let's be a church anchored in God's story. May it shape us, and may it compel us to live in a world where every person has a story. And we have the chance to interact with them in their story, pointing them to the foundational informing word of God. Let's pray. God, thank you for being a God of good news. A God who has given your word. Uh, may it be our anchor. We admit it is often confusing and there are times we don't know what to believe. Guide us, God. Lead us. Uh, may we humbly handle your word and may we allow your word to humbly handle us that we may leave a legacy that honors you. It's in your son's name we pray in the power of the Spirit. Amen.